Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and we are blessed today to have two amazing guests, one of whom, Alan Patrikoff, is truly, one could say, one of the real godfathers of the venture capital and private equity industry. He founded his first venture fund, I think, in 1969. So we're talking 50 years of relevant experience. And everybody knows Apex, which he founded, which actually I believe stands for his initials of Alan Patrickoff Associates, and the X is cross-border something. Exactly. So we'll get we'll get Alan to confess about the name there. And and then Greycroft. So Greycroft, uh, I think it's an amazing story. I remember hearing that. I knew Apex people, even Henrik Kraft, who was in the London office, then got into founding partner of KKR and is an LP in our fund. And I remember hearing in the news that Alan Patrickoff is leaving Apex to get back into early stage investing. And my research told me fund one, Alan was 75 million, but I thought I remember hearing you say in the news that 50 million would keep the fund with the fund size to be doing early stage investing. Yeah, um, well, uh, prime time, we've started with 50 million. With 50 million. Okay. But, but Greg Kropp did start with 75. Okay. So I'll stop talking in a minute, but most recently, Alan teamed up with Abby Miller Levy to launch Primetime Partners, which is focused on um, investing in companies relevant to older people. So to get more, enjoy more out of life in older years. But I'll let you guys explain it. So thanks so much for joining. Um, more recently, Alan joined forces with Abby Miller-Levy. Abby began her career at, well, Harvard, Princeton, then McKinsey. And she more recently was the founding president alongside CEO Ariana um, from Huffington at Thrive Global, a behavior change technology company focused on employee productivity, wellness, and worked also with new ventures in SoulCycle. So I'm really excited to hear about Primetime Partners and this unique strategy and yet another fund for Alan Patrickoff. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, you Andrew. Facts, got all your facts right. So I'll let Abby take it from here. Okay, so, yes. so Abby, maybe walk us through what is the thesis for Primetime and, and when did, it was about two, three years ago, I think that you and Alan really got going on this. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having us. Um, the thesis for for prime time is, is quite uh, straightforward, which is that older adults uh, comprise about 25% of the uh, US and the global population is the fastest growing demographic uh, and control two thirds of the net worth and about two, three quarters of the healthcare spend, a super relevant and important segment of our population and society. But historically entrepreneurs um, have really not been designing for this audience. In fact, the number of startups uh, that have kind of gotten to later stage funding uh, that focus on this audience, you know, you can kind of count on two hands historically. So about two years ago, um, actually a little over two years ago, November of 2019, uh, I was telling my friend John Patrickoff that I wanted to start a venture fund to encourage entrepreneurs to invest in the space. And he dropped his fork. Uh, we were having brunch on the Upper East Side. He dropped his fork and said, my gosh, that's what my dad wants to do. Uh, mm. And so it was really this fateful moment in November of 2019 when Alan and I connected um, to start, you know, working on primetime partners. 
I was fortunate enough to already know Alan. Um, Alan, uh, through Graycroft, was an investor and a, a board advisory member at Thrive Global, the company that you mentioned where I was the founding president alongside Ariana Huffington. So I would known Alan professionally, um, so it was actually quite easy, the camaraderie and, and relationship and trust that we had with one another to focus on building this. Um, as luck would have it, we were ready to, to start fundraising and, and begin the process of, of launching Primetime in March of 2020. And as you know, uh, the world melted down in March of 2020, really shut down because of, of the spread of COVID. Um, and so you might think that that's an awful time to launch a venture fund. It turned out to be a fantastic time for us to launch a venture fund because for the first time in a long time, unfortunately, the whole world was focused on thinking about older adults. Um, you couldn't open the newspaper or turn on the TV without talking about the plight of seniors in nursing homes. Now, while that's just a small portion of what we focus on, we focus on the overall experience of older Americans age 50 plus. And so that's beyond, you know, seniors and senior living. It's, you know, the population that has a whole variety of needs around their health, their financial services, their housing, their consumer, their media, their products. Um, so we address the overall experience. Um, we've made 23 investments to date since we officially uh, closed, uh, closed fund one in October of 2020. Um, and those investments are about 60% healthcare related, the rest split between FinTech and consumer. So that's a bit of the overview of the fund. We are now four investment professionals um, with, with, with a team of, of, of people helping us around that. And uh, I think Alan and I would both say it's the best time we've had in our careers. Well, it sounds amazing. I, I can only imagine um, Alan now at his age would have some opinions and insight into some of the investments you're making, making there as well. We invested, I'll, I'll send it to you offline, but I don't know if you've ever heard of Envoy America. It's a company we funded of out of Arizona. Okay. Where they're doing like Uber, they're like Uber for people with Alzheimer's or elderly infirm that you can't just send a lift to pick someone up uh, Yes, you know. NEMT. We know the space well. We also made okay. an investment in this in the sector. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, do you guys find that? Um, are you feeling a bit like a monopoly in the sector, or it, this is an area that venture firms cover, but they tend to be dealing with younger teams tackling problems they understand as younger people? Um, I mean, I mean it, it's just a clear strategy and niche to go after, but. Um, do you feel a bit, um, obviously it's, you feel it's an underserved segment of the market? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, when we started, we, I had talked to a bunch of my friends in venture funds and the quote unquote silver tsunami had been a bullet point on everybody's, on every one in ventures uh, kind of thematic lists because sure. the demographic shift is so, first of all, it's obvious uh, and, uh, and it's, it's notable. And so I think it's, more, not that we are the only ones looking at the space. I think we are the only ones focused on it across all the verticals. So there's healthcare right. funds that are interested in this, fintech funds, prop tech, consumer tech, you know, that have a vertical lens. We have a horizontal lens. Um, and the benefit of having a horizontal lens is that across our portfolio, what they can learn from one another um, in terms of acquisition, engagement, um, service models, um, it's just tremendous. Um, and so we have our core co-CEOs all wanting to meet each other. In fact, we're hosting an event in June for them, um, sure. you know, because they recognize that this, that, that this is an evolving space. Um, so I would also say that coming, not, not that we're out of COVID, but through COVID, we've seen a lot more interest, both from investors, but also entrepreneurs, uh, because, um, 
the topic has been so pertinent and personal to everybody. Um, sure. And so the number of, of, of other investors who are I, honestly complaining about how much technology support they've had to provide their aging parents who, you know, for oh, the yeah. first time ever are Zooming or using telemedicine, it's just become personal to um, investors and to entrepreneurs. So we're seeing a lot more activity in the space, which we welcome. We're seeing tremendous collaboration. I mean, Alan's always been a collaborative investor. Um, and I think his book coming out will, will represent that super well. And so have I. So, you know, we'd love to work with other funds um, to, to support uh, great founders. Sure. Abby, I mean, when you're a VC, you go ahead. Please, I would say, Abby, thank you for the plug for my book, which is, uh, since I'm going to take the lead, it's, it's called No Red Lights, and it'll be officially out on May 3rd, but it's available for pre-sale now on Amazon. Uh, so if your listeners want to buy it, it's there to uh, order in advance. But everything Abby's saying uh, is, is uh, I would compound her, her voice and her uh, enthusiasm. I mean, this has really turned into be, a, that's why we only raised a limited fund to start with. We weren't sure, you know, how big the market was, how fast we could, uh, could become a thought leader. We, Abby and I both agreed on one thing that we really wanted to become a thought leader in the space, which means speaking at podcasts like that, speaking at conferences, uh, We've had so many invitations from this group or that group on aging, whether domestic or abroad, uh, and every major university from Stanford and the West Coast to Harvard and the East Coast, MIT, to London School of Economics, everybody is focused on longevity. And, and we all wanna know, we all wanna live longer. In fact, one of our investments is a chain, I hate to use the word chain, it's, a, it's 20, longevity uh, 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 locations around the country where people go to to uh, find out what they can do to prevent these diseases, not after they got them, to prevent diabetes, to prevent Alzheimer's, to prevent PS, uh, PTSD, to prevent heart, heart attacks, and uh, what nutritional aspects to take. So that's just one of the 23 companies we've invested in. It's called okay, Cenog so Cenogenics. Yeah, I mean, look, when you're a VC, you want to add value to the startup beyond just your check. And sometimes it's easier in one's individual network to make relevant introductions to the founders to help them grow their business. I can imagine you guys are beginning to bring more and more focused relationships that are going to become relevant to every one of these companies of like, how do you access the demographic? Who are some of the partners you can bring in? So your June conference, I can totally see that being enormously value-add. And Alan, oh, I, I pre-ordered your book. And by the way, for, for people listening here, yeah, I've got, an, I'm an author too. And um, uh, I'll put a link to the Amazon in the show notes that anyone can pick up this book. And so it's No Red Lights and Never Driving Alone and talking about 50 years in the venture capital and private equity space. So I'm sure there's a ton of great stuff, ton of great stuff in there. And, I, and listen, I'd like to talk about about this on the podcast, but I want to make sure that we give time and attention to Primetime, the the new fund. So, the, so Ellen, what did you and Abby, what did you guys think was the right size for the new fund to get started with? I think that the Graycroft the Graycroft fund seems to have matured around 
360, 380 million for a seed fund that's doing what, 100K to $5 million checks, and then the growth fund writing up to $50 million checks. That seemed to be like the steady state of where Graycroft on the venture side landed. What is your thinking around prime time for now? You've already indicated that you wanted to test how big the market was, but I think the test is going to come back uh, positive that the market's there. Yeah, well, we're right in the yeah. midst of uh, discussing and I'll let Abby comment and trying to figure out what fund two will look like, what size it would be, because we really don't want to get ahead of our skis. And uh, uh, we want to right size it appropriately and uh, not be forced to invest more than is appropriate in a particular deal. And that's one of the problems with a lot of the venture firms today, as you, I'm sure, would acknowledge. They have too much money and they overfinance and in the process, raise valuations to extraordinary levels. We are trying to be responsible and disciplined. And uh, while we want to invest the money, we want to invest it wisely and in appropriate amounts at, at valuations where we can make a venture return. Right. Well, th that's the voice of wisdom ringing in a market with what feels like lacking in wisdom. So maybe, maybe segue on that to... Um, Talk about you know what has changed over these fifty years, Alan, in your investing experience, and like maybe what's good and what's bad. I mean, you just kind of talked about funds getting too big, result in bigger check sizes, which can impact valuations, maybe premature spending, and not as much austerity on a smaller smaller check. But you know, give us some context from nineteen sixty nine until today with your first. It was sixty nine was your first fund, right? Well, December '69, I uh, set 1970. But you're you're very you're very accurate. Uh, uh, you know, I get asked this all the time. I don't think that much has uh, has changed, uh, uh, except that we were all relatively unskilled at making investments. We were learning as we were doing it. Uh, there was no National Venture Capital Association, and I think at that time it was more going out. And and uh, and finding a deal, uh, rather than uh, the deals, deals weren't coming to us. Today, the deals come to us. Uh, no, I shouldn't say that. We're out. We're out hunting and pecking also. But uh, it's a much more established industry. The people in it have all gone to business school. In those days, they hadn't all gone to business school, so they're now financially trained. Uh, it's uh, the supply, the whole technology. Uh, uh, an entrepreneurial excitement of the last, I don't want to say 50 years, but certainly, you know, it, it just keeps getting better and better and better. And there are more people starting companies. <laughs> if you go to speak at a business school today, uh, uh, and I'm not sure I like the idea, but probably if you ask how many people want to start your own company, probably 70 or 80% of the people start, raise their hand. Now, they don't have necessarily the passion for particular area. They don't have the experience in the area. They just know they want to start a business. Uh, and because and why? Because their best friend did one and he made, you know, umpteen million dollars. Uh, uh, I think that Abby could comment on what the, you know, what the market is like today without necessarily contrasting with what it was like then. Uh, because, uh, you know, the type of portfolio you had then was a conglomerate 
a mishmash of, of different activities. You couldn't have started uh, primetime partners in 1970. I mean, there would have been right. so no one would have known what you were talking about. Uh, and to be singularly focused in one silo would have seemed insane. Uh, but I think Abby can probably give you a good sense of what the environment is like to, at the moment, what we're experiencing. So Abby, I mean, where's the market from maybe even like pre-COVID summer of last year to a bit cooling off? Where do you see valuations, how much money people are raising? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because we go across the different industry sectors. So, you know, digital health and, and health tech in general has been le leading that and, you know, Bitcoin have been leading the venture world um, over the past two years because of the dislocation in our healthcare system and all the changes that COVID has triggered, uh, as well as entrepreneurs realizing, wow, the system's really broken. You know, I have an idea to fix it. So the sheer number and amount of uh, so the, the sheer number of startups and then the amount of funding and the valuations within digital health is, is unprecedented. Um, I don't think it's a blip. I think this is here to stay uh, because fundamentally consumption is changing and the, uh, the shift from incumbents to startups is, is really apparent. So I would say a couple of things. One is just, there's a lot of people starting businesses to Alan's point. Um, but within healthcare, it's, 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 it's definitely on fire. Uh, fintech, we also invest in fintech. Um, that has seen tremendous growth. Um, fewer companies are getting big, um, but big, very big. But at the flip side, the consumer side, consumer hasn't been growing over the past two years in the same way, obviously consumer and retail. Um, so it's just an interesting focus on those areas. The other thing I'll say, especially as a female fund manager, is the number of GPs. I mean, there are thousands of uh, new GPs and, and new venture funds. Um, and a lot of them, compared to historically, are being started by women. Um, and I think that's a wonderful, um, you know, to see that. I also think that because there's so much LP capital out there, you're seeing a lot of uh, fund managers being able to raise, you know, 50, $100 million funds for venture. So that is flooding the system with a lot of venture money. So it's not just proliferation of entrepreneurs, it's proliferation of funds. Yeah. What are, a couple what are, the, what are the interesting things we've noted, uh, and I don't want to say shock, that's too strong word, but really surprised by, is the number of companies that we've seen started by young people who are starting them because someone that they're related to or involved with, whether it's mother, father, grandmother, brother, sister, has had some problem that they recognized uh, has to be served. And so there are, in this particular area, we're seeing a lot of young entrepreneurs. Now, at the same time, one of the things uh, Primetime has stood for is that we are, our door is open, our reception room is, uh, uh, has seats, older entrepreneurs who want to go back into whatever business they were in before, not necessarily yeah. serving older people, but the, if they were in the paint business, they want to go back and paint. If they were in, in carpeting, they can go to carpeting. If they were in technology, go back. but, and they can start all over again, rather than they, after they've sold their company or they think they want to retire at age 60, we're saying our, our, our shingle says, come and see us 
if you want to start again and if you can attract people from your previous company. It's, uh, we're trying to induce it, but even without that, Abby, what's the number of older entrepreneurs we have in our portfolio out of 23? What is it now? I wish it was more, uh, but uh, four of our uh, founding CEOs founded the businesses over the age of 50, um, which uh, would be great if we can definitely have more entrepreneurs who are excited in their second or third chapter, using Alan as the ro role model uh, of somebody who can continue to start businesses at any age. Um, so uh, it's definitely an area of interest of ours. Well, you know, it's not obvious to everyone, but it was obvious to me. I founded a company in 1995, and there was this guy, Ed Braniff, was the CFO of AT&T Systems and Billing, which was 70% of their revenue. And he took an early retirement package. And at the age of 54, he had a totally low, you know, high risk profile that for him, he had a pension to live on for the rest of his life from AT&T. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting down with Phil, my co-founder and Ed saying, Ed, how long can you go without a salary? So, you know, this is early days of the startup. And he goes, probably a couple of years, you know? And we were like, well, you're hired. And so it's interesting that you think of startups as a young man's game, which is now becoming a young woman's game, thank God, maybe late than where it should have been. But some of these older people have a profile that they can uh, totally go down the path of uncertainty of how long it takes to, to thrive, as opposed to that person's got three kids in private school, cannot just go off to Y Combinator and live on nothing for 18 months. So it, it, it's maybe a little less obvious than it would seem, but it's there. I wonder how many, how many, uh, that's an interesting question. I wonder how many older people, uh, let's say over 50 or over 60, go to Y Combinator. I wonder if there are any. I have no I've, idea. I've not seen I've not seen any, and I try not to miss a demo day. Um, so it's interesting to think, you know, I mean, right in front of my face, Ed's story made it really obvious that he was ready to join a startup. And after a life of, he ran the yellow pages with Joe Nacho, just an amazing career at AT&T, and now making a shift. Another thing to talk about here is if you, you were talking about these days, you know, raise your hand if you want to start a company. If you go to University of Tokyo today, and say the top of the class, what is your first choice career path? It's amazing how many say, I want to work in the government, which you're not going to see in the United States. And then the next choice is big corporates or just massive. They want to work for a huge Sumitomo type company. And how many want to work for startups? Not so many. These days, you ask young people, what's your you know, first, second career path? Sadly, you'll hear influencer, which you know, makes me sick. You know, they just want to be a YouTuber or something, but they all want to be Mark Zuckerberg. You know, they think they're going to get rich quick and it's going to be not so much of a grind, but it's just a totally different shift in the population from like where the U.S. is now to where Japan is. And you can probably expect that to change, you know, around the world, you know, but I would think other big shifts too, Alan, I remember in the nineties, if somebody got an IPO on the NASDAQ with a 350 million market cap, that was considered pretty damn good in success. That was the winner circle. Whereas now you're seeing with bigger funds and post.com crash, Sarbanes-Oxley, companies stay private forever. And a 350 million pre-money valuation for a company that you're four years into doesn't even seem that big. What's your perspective on these sort of changes to the landscape? Well, clearly 
not for not for us at prime time at this point, fortunately. But speaking to Graycroft, Graycroft for its new fund, which is just in the process of uh, raising, uh, has set as an objective. They set four pillars now, four silos of areas they're going to focus, and they really are not interested in any company that doesn't have an expectation of a ten billion dollar exit. Uh, uh, at first, it seemed extraordinary to me, but they may not be wrong because I think uh, a lot of these companies are getting to very high valuations in a very quick order at multiples of of something. I don't know whether it's multiples of the hair after. It's certainly not multiples of, of earnings. It's maybe multiples of revenues. Maybe maybe it's multiples of people employed. <laughs> but okay. it's. Uh, but the, uh, I think the whole level of expectation, and you know, if you think about it, it's circular. It's, it's got to be that way if you're going to raise a billion dollar fund, and you're going to put yeah. dollars into a deal. It better have a big exit, or you're not going to make the kind of because you're not going to own 100 percent. You've got to own a fraction. It's better have big a big exit. Fortunately, with the size of fund that we have at prime time, and that we will probably have, uh, I'm sure it will be bigger, but not too big, uh, we uh, can realistically put reasonable amounts of money at reasonable valuations and, and have real realistic exit potentials. Right, right. I, 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 like, I like the prime time a lot more than this modern Graycroft view. I hear, on, you know, for the first time in the last year, entrepreneurs that were pitching me for funding would say totally deadpan faced. So I completely believe this is going to be a multi-trillion dollar company. And I'm like, well, it better be for this stupid valuation that you're running around with, you know, which is not so interested in me. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that there's more than, you know, you have Apple, Microsoft are hitting multi-trillion. But that is a shift in the industry that we do have companies with more than $2 trillion valuations out there, that there are trillion dollar valuations. And then there's a sea of these decacorns. So that's your 10 billion aspiring Graycroft yeah. exit. That can start to buy companies. My partners at Graycroft are not dumb. They're actually very smart. And I think, and we've had several uh, exits that reach that level. And, uh, you know, with some of the markets that are now developing and the fast growth in these companies, uh, I'm sure they're going to find uh, more, than, more, than a, more than they need to uh, justify putting the money to work. Sure. Well, I hope that happens with Crafty. You know, I invested in Crafty and then Graycroft invested with us a few weeks ago yep. into their last financing. And so I'd be delighted to see that become a decacorn, uh, you know, but if it doesn't, we can still make a 50x return on it. So, so, so guys, with, with 50 years of experience and, and, and partnering with Abby on a new fund, a relatively new fund, what is your expectation on a cash on cash return when you're going into an investment? So when you guys are funding a company and you're, you're being realistic on entry point valuation, dilution you're gonna take, follow on investing, what, what's the expectation on an individual return going into it? Well, I obviously can answer that, but I'll let Abby answer it. She okay. can give you, she'll give you the modern version. We and by that's the beauty of our relationship is that you know the blend of 50 years experience with someone who was 
extremely smart. Uh, you don't know Abby, but she's she's a superstar and she knows what she's doing. She's not wide-eyed uh, and, and dreams of uh, things unrealistically, but uh, her perspective is uh, is perhaps more reflective of current environments. So Abby, you can comment and I'll- Well, well, well Andrew, just to, just to be data-driven, you know, of our 23 investment memos, the exit analysis return is ranged from 4X to 15X. Um, okay. And I think that is representative of the fact that we invest across sectors. So we'll invest across services businesses that uh, serve older adults, which are lower return, typically lower return businesses, um, right. to uh, you know SaaS businesses, which are higher multiples. Um, and I think the reason that we're comfortable with that range is that it's more than just an exit number. There's other variables um, at play in terms of time to exit and the time value right. of money, certainty of exit, um, and then the strategic value that it provides to the portfolio. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, you'll hear from many kind of fund one managers is fund one typically has more investments in it with smaller checks um, than funds two and three because you as in fund one are really understanding the landscape, making sure you're building your network and, and getting in the deals you wanna get in. Um, and I think that is representative of, of our fund. I mean, our first fund will end up with close to 35 investments in it. Um, and, and so, you know, that is, you know, will be refined as we go into fund two. So to answer your question, I think, it's also a little bit of a silly analysis and a silly question because every investor wants to start out with 15X and their investment memos and this is garbage in, garbage out. So uh, I typically, when people ask me this question, I say, I'll let you know in two to four years uh, yeah. you know, what the actual is, not the forecast. Well, at the same uh, time, if someone, you know, if, if a company with 1 million of, ARR just breaking 100k monthly reoccurring revenue is seeking a 70 million pre-money valuation or even imposing a convertible note, which will even be worse for the investor in most cases like that. Um, you know, if it's 70 million pre and it sells for 700 million with no funding between now and then, you're looking at a 10x return. And at that stage of, of traction, you know, I kind of think that there should be potential for a 50, you know, 50 to 75 X, you know, on, on investing early. So we kind of look at um, what is the entry point valuation and what is realistic with taking dilution or our next investment will be investing at a higher valuation. What, what stage are you investing in? So with these, with these. We're pre-seed, you know, seed and series A. We're pretty evenly split between seed and series A with one B sneaking in there. Okay. And so what's the range of valuations that you're seeing in the market uh, right now? And has that been cooling off for you or has it been heating up in these fast moving, highly sought after financings? I would say it's it, all over, certainly sub a hundred, but I, I want to go back to answer your question. Abby can then comment as well. And in terms of your question that I threw to Abby, I'll take it back in terms of what, for me, my expectation is if you're going into a high risk situation with no revenues, uh, you should be in the, if, you're, if you wanna stay in the venture business a long time, you should be expecting at least a 10, 15, 20 times on your money at that. Mm -hmm. That's balanced by 
something that already has some proven results and that is, uh, I don't know, may have revenues and may have a product that's already developed in which you uh, realistically scale back uh, your expectations, uh, you know, to uh, perhaps even under 10, but certainly five to 10 times. Uh, right. I would hope that we don't have too many returns that are uh, less than, you know, four or five times in our money at, at, the, at the worst. And that depends on what this, what, what stage you're at. I will say something else, which is, I keep saying to Abby, and because of my long perspective and long experience in this market, I am incredibly impressed by the state of our portfolio. And we're not selling, we're not raising money now, so I can say it. If it was, if it was raising money, I wouldn't say it, but out of our 23 companies, so far, keep my fingers crossed, We've had no write-offs yet. Uh, I'm sure there will be. And we've had six or seven companies that have done subsequent rounds at markups that we did not have to lead. So we, and we did not, we weren't forced to participate to justify getting other people in, which is pretty good for a company that's focused on seeds, pre-seed pre seed and, and A round. So our portfolio is in pretty good shape. Uh, and I think we can, you know, it's a blend. We have some really early stuff and a little bit later stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, listen, you know what venture returns are. No matter what you say, almost every fund, except for ones that are, you know, have something extraordinary from one company, end up, you know, three times on a venture fund usually ends up pretty good net of, of the losses. Uh, I hope we can do that or better, frankly overall reflecting losses after expenses, net of, of uh, GPT's interest, uh, I, I would hope it can end up. And what's your, I, I actually wanted to ask you that question and you just gave me the answer, but um, sometimes I think as an emerging manager myself, I'm investing out of a fund three right now of, we actually think we can make 12 to 15 X on our early stuff. But sometimes I think if you were investing later stage, and you're returning a 3x, but every three years, it's returning a 3x three times over three different vintages in a 10-year period, as opposed to these early ones that have taken so long to really fully get distri distributions. So the TVPI, the total value to paid in is great with all the markups. And we're at above a 4x, and we think it'll land between 7 to 15 for fund one and two. But you know, I think we should be selling some of our position in some of those companies to our own SPVs to return the fund a bit faster because making a smaller multiple, but it happens quickly is interesting compared to making a killer multiple, but it took so damn long. Hopefully one of your portfolio companies will let me live longer, but I'm already looking at how damn long does it take, you know, to get out of these, you know, so maybe what's your perspective on, because you've got the Apex and the Graycroft and the early, what's your perspective on making those shorter multiples late versus early and where to meet in the middle? It's always a trade-off, but I'll just remember something, not remember, I will remind you of something I've been saying for years. You make your most money on the last double. So just keep that in mind and that help you when you're thinking about whether you want to stay longer. So I when have, you say you make your most money in the last double, that means you're at a 25x or a 50x, and then all of a sudden it doubles from here. Is that what you mean? When it went at 1 million and it's worth 10 million, uh, 
and you you know along the way you've made money but if it goes from 10 million to 20 million in absolute dollars you're making more money in that last double right and, right, and, right right yeah and and obviously time comes in into play and, but just remember one thing also i have the usually the oldest person in the room and uh i have the longest time perspective well, I don't know about that. Being a combination of being smart and having the experience and having been around is worth a lot, I think, in any room. Well, but makes, it, what I'm saying is I'm not rushing to sell things. If they have a, if they have running room and they have momentum, stay with it. So ride your winners, ride your winners. Right, right. And I, I think we might be running out of time. Um, Alan, can you give us one or two nuggets from No Red Lights, so the all green light? book that's got that we can pre-order now well i just gave you one which is uh, uh focus on the last double the second i'll tell you is uh don't count on a cascade of miracles uh, and think everything is just going to ride going the right way it just doesn't uh, unfortunately uh you know revenues and multiples and and margins and profits and everything else they all don't go the same time some exogenous factor always seems to interfere with one or more elements of a business and uh, you just have to be prepared for it yeah i think diversification is a good way to neutralize that singular risk because that that stuff is going to happen to every roller coaster startup and and guys if if vcs and founders want to reach out to you with deal flow or lp interest or anything what's the best way for them to get in touch with you hello at primetimepartners.com okay hello at primetimepartners.com i'll put that in the show notes along with uh the link to the new book on amazon well alan i can't wait to read your book it'll be right on my bookshelf behind me uh and i uh, look forward to collaborating with you guys on on deal flow and if we get into a deck of corn that's great but we don't need it to uh make some good solid returns Thank awesome. You. Great to see you, Andrew. Thanks for the time. Okay, Abby, see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye.